I grew up listening to Car Talk with Click and Clack the Tapper Brothers on NPR, and it's a great car show. People would call in and have them diagnose their car problems. I remember one episode in particular where a gentleman was talking about his suspension on his car being shot. If you've ever been driving down the highway and you just see a car kind of bouncing up and down, looks like they're riding the waves, that's because there's no pressure left in the suspension to carry the weight of the car. And what they were doing is they were telling him, when you take this apart to replace it, you got to be very careful. Because that coil is under an immense amount of pressure, and they've actually seen people take it apart wrong, and seen that coil shoot across the auto body shop, put people in the hospital. It's a serious deal. Now, a year ago, I decided to replace the suspension on my pickup truck. But I had the added benefit of doing it on my brother-in-law's BMW X-Drive 3 Series first, three years ago. This is a coilover strut assembly, and this helps keep your car riding down the road in a very smooth and effective manner, but this coil is under an immense amount of pressure. Now, when I replaced it on my truck, I have a lot of room to move in here. The BMW left you no margin for error. Typically, you would have compressors on the outside of this to compress that spring even further to give you the room that you need to slide this out of the wheel well. But on the BMW, we didn't have that room. We couldn't figure out how to do it. And after two hours of fighting with it, my brother-in-law said, let's take off the top bolt. That's the only way we're going to get it out. Now, this one came with a warning. It says, highly compressed spring. Refrain from removing bolt. Injury or fatality can result. His didn't have that warning label on it. It's sitting up in the wheel well, and he starts taking off that thread. We get to the last thread, and boom! All the pressure from that coil slams into that steel wheel well. Thank God for that steel wheel well. It about gave us a heart attack. Sounded like a gunshot going off the immense amount of pressure that was on that. We're all under a lot of pressure. And most of us feel like if we take off the wrong ball, if we do the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, that relationship is going to explode and it's going to be over. Too much pressure is dangerous. But too little pressure is pointless. We need to figure out the things that are going to help us control the pressure because the right amount of pressure, controlling the pressure, actually gives us a smoother ride and better relationships. In John 10, there's actually two keys to controlling the pressure that I believe will help us have better relationships. Our story begins at the Festival of Dedication, or what you and I might know as Hanukkah. This is Israel's Independence Day around Jesus' time. It happened about 200 years before under an evil empire that had put an immense amount of pressure on Israel. The Seleucid Empire had control over Jerusalem and the temple. Even Antiochus Epiphanes IV had desecrated the temple, sacrificed a pig on the altar, and there was a family that had had enough, the Maccabean family. And they rose up and they delivered Israel from all the pressure that they were under. In the story that we're talking about today, this happens. When Jesus is in the temple courts, it's during this festival and the religious leaders are looking at him going, are you going to deliver us again? It happened for us 167 years prior. Are you going to do it again? And this is where we pick up John 10, verse 23. Jesus was in the temple courts in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were gathered around him kept saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Can you hear the tension, the pressure building in the relationship? The religious leaders are looking at Jesus and saying, hey, come out with it already. The Greek, for how long will you keep us in suspense, can literally be translated, how long will you intentionally annoy us? I don't know if you've been in a relationship like that where it feels like somebody's walking around and they've, they're kind of holding something back for you. And you're just looking at them going, come on out with it already. Like, I want to know. That's what the religious leaders are doing. 
They're feeling this pressure and they feel like Jesus is holding out on them. He says, tell us plainly. Verse 25. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And here's the clincher. I and the Father, speaking of God, are one. At this, the Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Two things happen, and I've seen it over and over in my life. Two things happen when pressure builds. Our purpose and our perspective get distorted. The religious leaders were looking at Jesus, and they said, we have an urgent need. An urgent need. You have to overthrow Rome. But Jesus is trying to tell them, I've got a bigger purpose, an ultimate purpose that I want you to see. I don't want to just overthrow Rome. I want to overthrow everything that Rome stands for. The system of oppression, evil, sin, the thing that causes all relationships to break down. The religious leaders look at them saying, no, 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 that's fine. But all we need you to do is to overthrow everything that caused Israel to break down. Their purpose is limited and short-sighted. For a healthy relationship, we need to focus on what is ultimate, not just what is urgent. Have you ever heard of Eisenhower's Matrix? It was made popular in Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It has four quadrants of decision-making. And that top left one is urgent and important. And when pressure builds, that's where we're supposed to spend our focus. The problem is is that oftentimes, if you're anything like me, we know what's urgent, but what's important kind of gets distorted. It's like throwing water on a grease fire. We know the fire's got to go out, but we've lost sight of the important details. That's what happened to us in COVID. My wife and I, we've been married almost 13 years, and it felt like for the past five months, it was day-to-day survival. You know, each of us trying to chart out what calls we had, what work meetings we had, who was going to take care of the kids when, when nap times happened, when meals were going to happen. It was survival. It was all about what was urgent. And we began lose sight of what was most important, or at least the, what was important got distorted. We were doing end-of-day reviews, you know, we'd, we'd come down at the end of the day and we'd, we'd kind of reflect on our day. And more than not, man, we was just hit with frustration as we realized we didn't get done everything that we wanted to, but we didn't do it the way that we wanted to either. You know, it's like we are failing on both ends. We weren't the people we wanted to be to our coworkers, to our friends, to our spouse, to our children. It, it was a failure. I was talking to a, a guy last week and he said he actually suspended the end of day review. He said for his own mental health, he couldn't take it anymore. He didn't want to kind of reflect on what he was doing and how he was doing it. If we want to know what's ultimate, we need to look at John 10 verse 30. We need to come into alignment with God. Jesus says, I and the Father, speaking God, are one. If we want to know what's ultimate, we have to bring ourselves into alignment with what God wants to do. And so we have two questions that we need to ask ourselves. What does God want to create in me? And then what does God want to create through me? What does he want to create in me? Who, do I, who am I supposed to become? And then what does he want to create in me? What kind of relationships am I supposed to develop? How am I supposed to speak life into these relationships? That last one was one of the most challenging things for me as I thought about 
kind of my kids and the value and the tone of our home, the environment of our home, the types of work meetings that I had, I wasn't creating the environment that I was called to create. The second key that I see out of the Gospel of John uh, comes in, in verse 33. And it's actually the reason why the religious leaders are going to stone Jesus. Jesus says, okay, why are you going to stone me? It, I, what work have I done that was so bad? And they said, it's not because of anything you've done. It's actually because of what you said. You being a mere man are, have created yourself as equal with God. That created a problem because it challenged the status of the religious leaders. See, the religious leaders knew they had this urgent need. They wanted Rome to be overthrown, they, but they wanted to have control of the situation. They wanted Rome to fall, but for them to remain at the top of the social ladder. It, Jesus didn't need to be God to do that. But Jesus wasn't just overthrowing Rome. He was overthrowing everything Rome stood for. The breakdown of relationships with God and with others. He was attacking a much bigger uh, and ultimate picture. But the problem was that the religious leaders were so focused on their status that it didn't allow them to see what Jesus really wanted to do. Frank Pittman, he's a couples therapist, talks about the competitive nature that happens in a lot of relationships. And he talks about the marriage relationship this way. He says, you can't be happily married and right at the same time. Now, that, that strikes us a little funny, you know, but he's not talking about morals or ethics or right and wrong. What he's talking about is the status. He said, if your spouse, the person you're in a relationship with, feels as if they are wrong, less than if we have to fight over and over again to be at the top every time for our status to be proven. And in doing so, it puts them down below us as if they're flawed. Something's fundamentally wrong with them, that they are wrong as individuals. Then it hurts the relationship. And there's no way to hurt the relationship without hurting yourself. That's a powerful reminder. It's not about the status that we have, the need for relationships to revolve around us and for our routine to stay in place. It's not quite enough for me to be focused so much on my work that I lose sight of what's most important. This actually came up a couple weeks ago. My wife and I have a five-year-old and a one-year-old, and we had a babysitter coming in, and it was a particularly stressful day. I knew I had a lot on my calendar had a lot of stuff I needed to do. And after five weeks of quarantine, Isaac, my one-year-old, is used to seeing my wife go downstairs to her office. And it's created a little bit of separation anxiety for him. And I knew this. Like some mornings, it's hit or miss whether it's going to go well or not. This one particular morning, it was eight o'clock. Babysitter showed up right on time. It was perfect. I had a full list of stuff to do. And I said, I'm getting down to my desk and I'm working right away. Like, I'm putting my head in the books, I'm putting my head in the laptop, and I'm not coming up. About 8.10, I hear screaming, like bloody murder screaming. And, you know, being the good husband that I am, what do I do? I put my head a little bit further into that laptop and try to ignore some of that background noise as my wife is upstairs trying to come down and leave Isaac. And about five minutes of screaming goes by, and I, I'm just thinking to myself, just pull the Band-Aid off, why don't you? Just, just like bolt for the door, he'll be fine, you know, he'll get over it. Another five minutes goes by and Joanne pops her head actually in the door of my office and looks at me and says, that was less than helpful. Now, she could have said a lot meaner things, but that's how she let it. That was less than helpful. I knew exactly what she meant. I could feel it. I could feel it. And, you know, I tried to cobble together some logic. Hey, we got a babysitter. Eight o'clock. I need to get down there. Like hours are limited. Time is limited. I got my routine. I got my list. I got my responsibilities. I got to do it. My, what was important was distorted. 
our paths cross at lunchtime as we're both in the kitchen trying to make lunch and get back down to work. And I look at her realizing something and I say, it wasn't intentional, but it was selfish. It wasn't intentional, but it was selfish. There was a need for me to lay aside my perceived status. Because when urgency hits, I clamor for control. I fight for it. I want it. I want my routine to be in place. I want people to work around me. But healthy relationships focus on service, not status. Serving the relationship means doing what is best for the relationship. And oftentimes that means pursuing reconciliation. I love this statistic. 34% of individuals continue an argument even when they know they're wrong. And 74% continue fighting when they know it's a losing battle. Serving the relationship means setting aside our perceived status, our need to be right, our need for things to work around me. And instead it means laying that aside. You're not going to get it right in the moment. 95% of the time, you're not going to get it right in the moment. But it does mean coming back to that conversation and saying, hey, I want something different for our relationship and I want to pursue reconciliation. It's about we, not me. Today, are you willing to follow Jesus in this portrait of what serving a great relationship is, of serving what is ultimate? Whether it's with your coworkers or your friends or your spouse or your children, it's having that bigger picture and saying, Jesus, create in me who you want me to be and create through me life-giving relationships to those I love and care for. This morning, we're going to be taking communion. And communion is an amazing opportunity to celebrate what God wants to do inside of us and do through us. So if you haven't already, go ahead and grab something that's going to represent the body and the blood of Jesus. We have bread, juice. Those things tend to work really well. I've got bread and juice here this morning. And we're going to take this together as a declaration and a decision to follow Jesus and to say, God, create in me who you want me to be and create through me the life-giving relationships that you have in mind, that you might help me keep pressure in check. First Corinthians has Jesus, the night he was betrayed, taking bread and saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Let us take it and eat it this morning. Once dinner was done, he took the cup. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And what he's saying is, I am doing something new. I am overcoming everything that Rome stood for, the evil, the oppression, the things that separate you from God and from others. It's a new covenant. It's a new promise. Let's take it and drink it this morning. Pray with me. God, we ask today that you would do something new in me, create in me who you've called me to be and create through me the environments, the values, the relationships that you have in store, that by my words and my actions, your kingdom might come down and restore relationships and keep the pressure in check. God, transform us this morning that we might see your life flowing through us. In Jesus' name, amen.